You always said your dad gave you paper skin It was wafer thin, look, felt tip pens Bleed away from where you make amends I seen the way your eyes turn and sets Enough to wonder how you keep them flames burning fresh With him it's always gin and tourniquets I don't know how you think you deserve that shit I'm afraid you've been growing hard to reach again Cause when we play shows, I see your shadows leaning in Hello and welcome to the Storyteller Podcast. Um, Today we are here with Tony Williams, also known as Tony the Scribe, from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, We are preparing for an event tomorrow night, hosted by MPD 150, which is a benefit. Um, And Tony's going to talk a little bit more about that, as well as uh, just who he is, his story, and his rap. So... We'll kind of get started. Um, Tony, you released your debut solo rap album, Mixed Blood, a little over a year ago. Can you talk a little more about that process and how you feel like your music and experience have grown and changed through and since then? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Um, Mixed Blood was a real, um, I guess, a real lane change for me in some ways. Um, I'd Up to that point, I mean, when I started making music, I'd made music... Um, on my own for a long time in high school, right? But um, then I really, really got deep into working with Killstreak um, and with Icetep, um, and it had been a while since I sort of put something out just on my own um, and thought about what that meant to me and how I wanted to cultivate something. And um, and so when I moved back, I moved back to Minneapolis um, after college, after I finished school, um, and Mixed Blood was really sort of me picking back up the pieces of... Um, of my own creativity and trying to figure out where I wanted to go with it next and and what this new part of my life was going to look like um, aesthetically. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think it kind of came about naturally. Um, A lot of the songs were um, things that had, you know, either come about um, in Killstreak sessions or that I'd been working on by myself or um, I'd been playing shows with a band called World out in California um, and some of the material came out of sessions with them. Um, And yeah it all felt like it came together pretty naturally um and really gave me space you know um I think that it was a lot of really really big changes in my life right um it was um moving states right um going from you know having like a direction set in front of me um for pretty much my whole life to like having to dictate my own direction um moving into organizing more like um as a as a long-term way of life thing um and um and yeah, I think being able to put that together um, really helped me consolidate a lot of that into a particular frame. Yeah, um, I feel that. That felt really, really good. I feel that. I feel like I think some of the best art and like most authentic art comes out of those like really weird places of transition that yeah. you, I mean, you couldn't really plan for. You just like end up there, and that's you're like, oh, this is how life works. Like as you're becoming a person and in your own right, you know, figuring that stuff out. Yeah, it's liminality, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like um, this whole concept. I mean, it's it's funny, you know, Janice, when we put it out, like one of the things that we focused really hard on was um, Killstreak, the Janice record that came out in 2013. Um, the Janice is the god of doorways um, in like the Roman pantheon, right? Yeah. Um, and I think a lot about doorways and about um, liminal transitional spaces, you know, spaces between spaces um, where everything is surreal and nothing quite feels normal. Um, and I think that's what transitions give us is sort of a different clarity. It's kind of like how if you go to an airport, right, nobody who's in the airport stays in the airport, right? Like, it's a transitional space for everybody who's there, and I think that gives it a completely different flavor than, than other social spaces. 
Right. Yeah. It's a very it can be very purifying. Like it's messy yeah. and real, but it's there's something really purifying about that. I feel like in his books. Yeah. Yeah. And it also like I don't know, it served as a place for me. I'd been really interested in performance art um and in expanding that as a part of my practice. Um and I think um the Mixed Blood release show like sort of was sort of I guess like a first landmark place for me in that space of being like okay, I'm not just going to do you know conventional rap shows anymore. Um I think there's a lot of good in that. I think they're really really incredible a lot of the time, but um, but I'm trying to do something different. Um, and so it really felt like growing up in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Okay, this is going to be all playing to the setup. Yeah. <laughs> poor choice. <laughs> poor good choice. Mm-hmm. At least poor glass choice. We could all, like, drink break. Cool. So you mentioned um, Killstreak. So you're kind of best known for your role as the rapping half of Killstreak. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about that? the origins of that, what you guys do, how it's kind of grown since the debut of Jan, Jan yeah. which you also talked about. Yeah, so Ice Step and I have known each other for a long time, um, met each other um, in middle school originally, but um, were, um, I guess, sort of thrown into um, creative collaboration together, largely by um, a mutual friend of ours, um, who's my roommate right now, actually, um, and he was basically like, look, Ice Step, you're making a bunch of music um, Tony, you're writing a bunch of raps. You guys should do that together. Um, and it was really the first time that, you know, all, I feel like young creatives often have like a bunch of different, like loose collaboration offers thrown at them. You know, a lot of people are like, let's get together, let's build, let's make some things. Um, but people are so rarely serious about it. And there's like, so rarely, I feel like, especially in that like gestating age of art, people are so rarely willing to like dedicate actual time and energy, um, and yeah to to putting some putting together something that actually reflects both people accurately um and so that was really um it was really important for me at that time um to to find that right and to find a collaborator who i felt like really understood what i was trying to do um and who i really understood what he was trying to do um and so the opportunity to come together and put that record together um i think was really really important for both of us and um yeah again it was um one of the first projects I'd ever put together that I felt really serious about um, and that I think both of us really, really invested a lot of energy in, not just to say, hey, we want to make something that's good for, you know, being 16 or whatever, but like that we actually think will last. Um, And yeah, so we put that together. Um, I actually, we were both living in California, going to school at the time, um, and I flew down to his college for spring break um, and we recorded the whole album in basically a week. Um, And then mixed it um and mastered it at the sound gallery um back in minneapolis that summer um so yeah since then um we've both been making a lot of stuff on the side um obviously i've been putting together a lot of solo material um and he has been working with sims with astronautilus um with a bunch of other really heavy hitters in the scene um people we've looked up to for a long time um and that's super super dope um but I think we're coming back to the point where we're really interested in making more stuff together. Um, and yeah, we've got, we've got some stuff on the way, um, that, uh, we've been working on for a long time and it feels good to, feels good to say that and to actually feel like there's some momentum, um, there in addition to in both of our solo endeavors too. To see some of that stuff come to fruition, I feel like it's such a, just like, I don't know, it just brings so much life to you and it just feeds, I feel like your art or your work, whatever you're doing. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's nice. I don't know. I've been really appreciating lately. I think I'm working on five different musical projects right now with like different combinations of people and stuff like that. Um, and all that are like pretty decently far along. Like all of them are past the initial stage of what are we? What are we doing here? What's the point? Um, and I've been really appreciating having all of those different lanes um, to make things in. Because the stuff I make with Killstreak is way different than the stuff I make in my solo in my solo music. You know, is different than the stuff I make with other collaborators. So, um, yeah, just trying to enjoy that and, um, and let different impulses come out at different times. That's awesome. That's cool. Um, so you've been part of the local rap scene, Minneapolis rap scene, mm-hmm. since high school. Um, so how have you kind of seen it grow and change, and what do you see your role in that yeah um i really love the way the scene has grown actually um since i started getting involved in it um you know i feel like the the biggest thing about it has been that it's grown closer together and i feel like that's like i guess emblematic of a lot of larger changes that have happened in hip-hop in the last 10 years um you know in the early 2000s right it was either you're an underground head or you're a mainstream rap fan right you're one or the other you can't be both you know people were sniping back and forth at each other all the time which has always been stupid because like their effect i mean it's the same genre (laughs) you know people are talking about the same stuff right um you know um and so i think like i think a lot about run the jewels when i think about stuff like this right so you have you know, a rapper who was on B-sides of Outkast albums coming together with a rapper who headed up, you know, maybe the most influential underground rap label in the country. Um, and they're having this second coming and everybody's realizing that, oh, they, they actually weren't that different in the first place, right? You know, and um, and I think that's a lot of what's happened in the Twin Cities, too. I think um, we had a reputation, probably justly, of being a city full of backpackers um, and boom bap rappers, um, you know, in the early 2000s. Um, really really um heady and verbose um and um divorced in some ways from um from other elements that are really important to hip-hop right um and i think i think there's a lot wrong with that i think there's some right about that um but i think one of the things that we've done in the last couple years is figured out how to sort of unify those things um and recreate a different sound right so you know you had the standard you have girl party you have all these um these groups that came out that really sort of flipped that on its head right Mm -hmm. Um, and now I think our scene is a lot more diverse than it's ever been before. Um, and with a lot, yeah, a lot more, I guess, musically, right? And, Mm -hmm. and lyrically, right? Um, and I still think there's something that's, um, identifiably Minneapolis about a lot of it. Um, but I feel like in general, we have a, we have a better mosaic of different things happening here than we ever have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Minneapolis has obviously a really incredible scene. I mean, we have, you know, Doomtree, and we have POS, and we have just some really incredible, Lizzo, we have just, I mean, all these incredible artists who are just doing incredible work, and I think have brought a lot of attention, um, and have inspired a lot of local artists, which is really cool. Um, So you've listed local successful artists like Doomtree and Guante as sources of inspiration. Can you kind of expand a little bit more on that and on other music that inspires you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, locally, I mean, I feel like... um I feel like there was something really accessible to me about a lot of local Minneapolis rappers. And I keep going back and forth, like trying to figure out what exactly that was that allowed me to access, um, that allowed me to access a lot of Minneapolis rappers music. And I mean, part of it was just like landmarks, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Part of it was, I feel like, I, I felt like and do feel like Minneapolis has a certain sort of rhythm to it that other cities don't have, probably as a result of the climate and the weather more than anything else, right? 
um you know it's got this this vibrant verdant joy to it in the summertime and this um this just like slow melancholy to it in the wintertime um and i feel like that combination like creates a, a like something that just works you know like it's like getting out of your bed you know when it's 20 below outside in the middle of january um and um you know trying to make yourself some coffee so that you don't freeze to death on the way to the bathroom to the shower right um and then you know the summertime and you know seeing people out and about around lakes block parties every other week um and just like people you know happy and you know all around right and i feel like minneapolis music has always worked between and with those two extremes Mm -hmm. um and a lot of other music like i'm not really interested i guess in the fun happy stuff as much unless it has the the something slower and more melancholy in it and i'm not interested in listening to slow depressing music all the time if it doesn't have a potential for joy in it too um and yeah yeah and just like working with the fact that you know reality is complicated and nuanced and, and there are a lot of different ways to address that um so yeah that's one thing i love about minneapolis um yeah i don't know i was really really into underground rap um i was a total 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 underground rap purist um which had all kinds of problems um when i was in high school right you know it um there's an element of classism in there for sure it's internalized white supremacists uh white supremacy all, all kinds of different stuff there um but i think um yeah i think i've gotten as i've gotten older i've gained a much broader appreciation of music and i guess like that's not even something that i've discovered but something that i've rediscovered as much you know i grew up with um with a family who was singing and making music and and playing stuff all the time you know whether it was um whether it was soul or whether it was hip-hop or whether it was rock or whatever you know um and so i feel like in the last couple years here i've really come to um, you know, it's, it started with me, I think, for, like, Minneapolis hip-hop was a huge influence, right? And then it became Midwest hip-hop. I listened to a lot of Lupe, a lot of Kanye, right? Um, and then from there, I think it got to be um, a lot more further afield hip-hop, right? Everything from, um, from like, Lil Wayne to Aesop Rock, right? Um, and then from there, I think now I'm, like, I don't even know what I listen to anymore, honestly. Like, sometimes it's Bob Dylan. Like, sometimes it's... Uh, I was listening to Radiohead all day yesterday. I went on a huge The Beatles kick, like, a month or two ago. Um, I feel like there's just a lot out there. And, um, and yeah, increasingly I'm not interested in... Um, not interested in listening to one genre over the other as much as I am in songs and what makes songs tick as a medium. Yeah. And... and how different genres work within you know three minutes four minutes five minutes um to tell a story yeah i feel like as we like develop our identities especially you know people who are um you know people who are really analytical or people who you know really look at themselves in the world often um that's something that you see or something that i have seen at least i noticed it in myself and i noticed it in the people around me um who kind of share that experience of like as you figure out who you are and as you understand that you have consent and so much autonomy autonomy over your own narrative and over you know you know your own experience and your passions you understand that what you're looking for you know isn't like a specific mold or a box it's this it's this experience and for a lot of people um in in music in particular and just a lot of artists i think it's this experience of like authenticity you know and this like this realness yeah 
I think one of the persons um, who actually understands this best and has talked about it really, really eloquently um, is Slug from Atmosphere, right? Um, and he talks about um, all of music being, you know, this massive tree and the roots are, you know, here and there and the branches are here and there. And um, they might look a lot different from each other, right? But um, but it's all part of the same tree. And I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to think about yeah, it. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. Drink break. Okay. <laughs> Pull up. Trike. I get the driest mouth so fast, and so whenever I'm like oh, yeah. in control over spaces, I'm always like, "Okay, everyone, please yeah. drink, be comfortable." <laughs> like that should be your podcast gimmick. <laughs> just yeah. is there's a, you just leave the drink breaks in, yeah, and like everybody who's It'll listening to the podcast, the board, like, they can all also yep. take a drink. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll make it a whole thing. <laughs> a little, little drink break. Yeah, like ice, yeah, glass. Okay, so you spent about five months or so studying in Japan. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little more about that experience, the culture, and how it's impacted you? Yeah, it was wild. Um, I, uh, I think, like, the biggest part about it for me was I was sort of expecting to go. I've been studying Japanese for, like, eight years at that point, um, and I was expecting to go and come back with a, excuse me, um, I was hoping to come back with a renewed appreciation of what, humanity was right I guess and, and about how we're all the same and we're all unified and um, you know people really aren't that different no matter where you are and I came back home with exactly the opposite <laughs> I came back home yeah and was like wow I was so naive to think that um, to think that people aren't that different or that cultures aren't that different, um, so different. yeah they're incredibly different incredibly different um, and I think that's one of the reasons that the whole um, you know, if we just all learned how to communicate better, we would all be on the same side and the world would be rainbows and ponies is bullshit. Um, because, um, because people are really different. People right. have really important differences and to them. No, we're not supposed to be the same. Like it would be, it would be really horrible for me to have gone all the way across the world only to end up in exactly the same place right. that, that I am now. And, um, so yeah, so many strengths to that experience. Um, and a lot of difficulties too. Um, I am not not well suited for um, living extended periods of time in Japanese culture. Um, a lot of things about my personality that make it difficult for me to exist in that milieu, right? I mean, which is true too for fuck it American culture. You know, like there are lots of elements of my personality that don't thrive well here either, right? Um, so it was interesting, um, you know, going and I guess like swapping out a palette of strengths and weaknesses um, and saying, okay, what parts are there of me that resonate with Japanese culture? What parts of their, what parts of me are there that resonate with American culture? And how are they different? How do I get to be different versions of myself in both places? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was um, very, very difficult, very enriching, very rewarding. Yeah, I feel like being abroad for an extended period of time forces a critical lens that just isn't there otherwise. Yeah. I mean, regardless of if you're studying, if you're working, whatever you're doing, because you're constantly seeing things just differently i mean every everyday things waking up eating food like taking a shower going to the bathroom everything is just a little bit different yeah. and there's a different context and understanding and background to all of it and so you're just constantly um figuring out like where you fit and like what not only your role is in this context but in your own context and understanding that there's parallels everywhere and that there's it's problematic it's so nuanced always like yeah. that's that's how it is i you know i studied abroad in namibia and i was a little white girl from south dakota who was yeah. going to study apartheid 
in a country that has to be given like <clears throat> this country has you know plenty of work to do every country does every person does um but they you know have at least attempted to you know deconstruct their systems of apartheid they've attempted yeah. to go through you there's know, a real conversation about it in a way right and it's right and it's it's but i am this little white girl coming to your country to open up your wounds and dissect them and learn about them when i have an incredible incredible culture that's present and real and not changing of police violence and of systematic violence against black bodies in my own country you know in my own community all the time and so it's but it's you know but there's also a ton of things that were really beneficial about being abroad there's a ton of things that were really communal and incredible for a lot of people being able to open up and share their stories with people who didn't understand that context was really healing you know being able to like explain that narrative on their own was you know taking something back and so it's just it's this nuanced and complicated thing and i just feel like you it it forces you to understand a perspective of that yeah well like i don't know interfacing with hip-hop in japan was one of the most fascinating things i've ever done um you know, because, like, you go to Harajuku um, and, you know, all these, like, fancy streetwear fashion places, um, you know, that are on the street that are so glamorized in America. And a lot of them are streetwear places now. And a lot of them are models basically modeling black American clothing, right? Um, and you start talking to these dudes, um, and they're almost all dudes, right? And they're all from Africa. And I was like, this is a fascinating thing, right? That the diaspora has like projected such a cultural image through America onto East Asian culture that when they think about blackness in a global context, they think about American blackness and what American blackness looks like and what hip hop looks like. That's and such a fascinating, like weird. Yeah, it's fucking yeah. crazy. <laughs> um, it drove my head it, in circles like so sometimes. It's fucked up yeah. and so real and so in, like just in there and it's so messy yeah exactly well and like i was in a i was in a hip-hop dance crew while i was over there um for a little bit and um there was just like a really fascinating like deep and abiding love of hip-hop culture but um some misunderstandings of it and like i walked into this dance circle my first day that i was there and everybody was way more dicked out i mean everybody looked like they were an avarex ad from 1995 (laughs) in new york and I showed up in like a I showed up in like a t-shirt and jeans and was like, am I the least hip hop person here? Am I the black American that's like the least hip hop person in the room right now? That's fucking like crazy. Talking about hip hop, like yeah, yeah, it's wild. But then um, started talking to people about like the miseducation of Lauren Hill, and they were like, what's the miseducation of Lauren Hill? And I was like, this is so different. Like that, like just like the way that people have, um, the way that people are working with and experiencing this culture is so different here than it is back home. And I feel like that was true in like so many different dimensions of life, even outside of hip hop. Yeah. And the reality is there's no way to understand that or like confront that unless you're viewing it or like, you know, experiencing it. And I feel like that's the benefit to, for me, at least to, in a lot of ways to travel is that you are just forced into that perspective that you just like would not have otherwise. It's just nuanced and it's strange. And it's like, it's very much so one of those in the middle places where you're just observing your surroundings and yourself and, yeah, and it's real bodily. I mean, it's it's so visceral that you don't even really process it until mm-hmm. you get back. Yeah, and that's a, an experience. I think everybody's got to get yeah. out of this country um, for at least a little bit at some point, if it's at all possible for you. Um, yeah, understanding like obviously accessibility is a thing. Yeah, like, accessibility is a huge thing. Um, but I like Ta-Nehisi Coates in Between the World and Me talks about, particularly about Black folks, how important it is for Black folks to go to other places mm-hmm. because. I mean, white supremacy is a global phenomenon, but it's different everywhere else in the world than it is here, right? I mean, here has a 
such a different, like, visceral experience of white supremacy, right? And so, like, he talks about going to Paris, right, and and being able to to breathe for the first time um, outside of the context of American white supremacy and just talking about what that felt like. Um, and I think everybody, um, as much as is humanly possible, should get to have that experience of of getting to feel like um, of getting to feel breath, right, um, outside of the American bubble and what it feels like. Yeah. Um, and in different bubbles, right, and with their own their own problems yeah. and their own histories and. Um, their own ignorances and biases, right? right. But um, but um, different perspectives, right? Yeah, yeah. it's important. Yeah. That's a really good way of naming that. Um, so along with rapping, oh yeah, drink break. Good call. I think he called this one. Yeah, he called this one. My ice is all melted now, so there's no more clanking. Oh, shoot! Hopefully, you got some good audio, some good ice clanking. <laughs> so yeah. Along with rapping, you're also very active in the Minneapolis activism scene. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of want to talk a little more about that and the two scenes and their intersections, how they overlap. Yeah. Um, so I, um, let's see, I came back to Minneapolis um, after school when I was done, um, sort of the same time period that I was working on Mixed Blood. Um, and I'd been doing some organizing out in California. Um, got way, way, way more radical throughout college. Um, so I guess through the, yeah. And I mean, I, like, I was pretty progressive before I left too, but I think something about the tension of being in a lot of ways, like, uh, like one of the least radical people in the room when I was in Minneapolis all the time, um, I was friends with a bunch of anarchists and I was like, at that point, like a pretty, you know, well-meaning liberal. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I went out to California and all of a sudden, I was like the most radical person and pretty much the only black person in like almost any room I was in, right? Um, at this privileged ass, you know, rich like California school, right? Um, and that was a that was a really really wild experience. Um, and I think that had a lot to do with me getting more interested in organizing, just being like, no, actually, like people are dying out here. Like we all can't just like go to keggers every Friday night and. Um, you know, and drink till our faces fall off and ignore what's actually happening in the real world, you know? Um, and so I got involved with some organizing on campus there, um, and, um, we got some really cool stuff done my senior year. Um, uh, a bunch of, basically me and a bunch of black girls, um, that just murdered it. Um, and so then, like, coming back to Minneapolis, um, I knew that, I mean, I was looking for a day job, obviously, and I was like, all right, organizing seems like sort of the thing to do and sort of trip my way into an organizing training and um, never really looked back, or at least not until relatively recently. The freedom, I think, that comes in encountering these spaces that are so radical in Minneapolis is just like slowly, it's just, it's so unique. It's so different. I'm, I'm from Sioux Falls, and I feel like I all the time anytime that I'm there I'm the most radical person possibly in the state of South Dakota yeah and like in in Minneapolis like it's just not the case like I'm definitely very radical but I'd be like a moderate radical you know and given the spectrum that if you know that you put that on in this city um I'd be like somewhere in I mean maybe a little bit past the middle but like in Sioux Falls it's just a totally different narrative well not to like fetishize radicalism but I do feel like Minneapolis just like reminds you of the fact that like again things are possible like there's something that is more possible than what is than what is the status quo right now right and again i feel like part of that's got to come back to the climate right i mean it's got to come back to you're constantly aware of the changing of seasons you're constantly aware of 
the nuances of the world and it's complicated. Well, and like you're going to spend six months barricaded in your house because it's really fucking cold and you're probably going to be pretty sad. And so you like need to protect yourself and protect your people and like make sure you have your support networks and that everybody's doing all right. And I feel like it. Um, I just rewatched Watchmen with my girlfriend the other night and um, I feel like, um, spoiler alert, you should skip ahead 30 seconds in this podcast if you don't know anything about Watchmen. It's been out since the 80s. Uh, yeah, yeah, but but everybody everybody should get to everybody should get to experience Watchmen, okay? Um, but on some um, on some humanity works better when we have an enemy to fight against, right? Um, and I feel like that's you know so whether it's a giant squid or Doctor Manhattan, you know, take your pick, right? When people have um, something to look at as a villain, you know, they band together and work together better. And I feel like in Minneapolis, in a lot of cities the villains are just other people, right? And in Minneapolis, like, the landscape itself is trying to kill you for half the, the year. the fucking system. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. So you're like, we gotta figure out how to, we gotta figure out how to survive this somehow together. The system everywhere, but in Minneapolis, like, it is the fucking yeah. system. Well, and I'm talking about the climate. Absolutely. You know? I mean, that's what, like, all, I mean, all of it. Like, yeah, it's yeah. A real, like, visceral experience that you're, like, constantly... I'm talking about the literal climate. Yeah, I'm talking about, like, the weather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the giant squid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But also, I mean, but it's true about uh, about the system for sure, too. Um, so I feel like people really band together and work, um, get down to work here um, in a way that's really reinvigorating. I think what I love about Minneapolis so much, why I keep going back to it, why I'm constantly awed by it, why I love having a camera here, is because the experience of community never fails to just, like, blow me away. Like, it's so incredible. Yeah. And no matter... It's in regardless of if you're talking about like actual climates or if you're talking about sociopolitical climate, like the experience of community is so real and it's so grassroots and it's so just like it's just connected in the weirdest ways. Like it's you walk down the street and you just have these very strange and such a big city. Like it's a very large city. There's a lot of people here. Like there's just this this understanding um, that just it's like a human understanding connected and it's real but yep. it's, it's growing with the world around us and I, I just feel like it's a very you know I'm reminded of it here in a way that I'm not anywhere else yeah it's tight yeah it's a cool place I like what you said about about the climate too because that's something that goes beyond you know politics or anything else it's like whether whoever you are we all need those networks and yeah there's something right. There's something kind of grounding. You just need that. you need community when it's cold. Like I have seasonal affective disorder, and I need accountability. Like yeah. I need it. Like it gets bad. Like I could sleep for 24 hours a day on a regular basis, and that is not healthy. And a lot of people in Minneapolis probably could, in Minnesota probably could, because yeah. it is dark a lot. Yeah. Totally. And so just like figuring out how to love each other and how to love yourself and how to have grace with the community that you're in, but also stand up for really important things and make yeah. sure that things don't slip through the cracks when they shouldn't. Yeah, on how not to die. Like, in any myriad right. of different ways, right? It's like, how not to die because it's cold out. How not to die because the cops are racist. Like, how not to die because, you know, there's, like, not enough, like, municipal services for poor folks. You know? Like, there's any number of things that'll kill you out how here. How not to die even just, like, being hit by a vehicle on your bike. Like, yeah, yeah, totally. Lots of, like, like in big and small ways. It's just there's an understanding of that. Yeah, yeah. It's like fucking Australia out here. Everything's trying to kill you. Everything is trying to kill <laughs> uh -huh. you. And yeah. so far, it's failed. If you're listening to this podcast, mm -hmm. congratulations. You're not dead yet. Mm -hmm. Because there's people here who are just engaged in movement work. That's really yeah. important. Which 
I think plays a major role in not being dead yet. Yeah, totally. Um, totally. Speaking of, so MPD 150 is hosting a fundraiser to assist their work in abolishing the police. Um, do you kind of want to talk a little bit more about them, about that work, and kind of about the event that is coming up tomorrow? Yeah, so MPD 150 um, is a really awesome organizing collective that I'm a part of. Um, and basically we are seeking to create a police-free Minneapolis. Um, so we're really interested in investigating alternatives um, to the police, right, and trying to see what it would look like to live in a city without them. Um, and we're doing that primarily by looking back at the history of the Minneapolis Police Department, um, looking at the present of it, um, and then trying to come up with ideas for what, um, what an actual transition to a police-free city would look like. Um, and I feel like when people hear police abolition a lot of the time, they they you know think it's just a pipe dream right but police abolition is like really really possible um i mean if you think about like what cops are actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis you know the vast majority of it is not chasing down bank robbers or super villains or whatever right it's you know harassing brown people doing traffic tickets um criminalizing sex workers and drug users um you know and it's um even just like you know, directing traffic and, and going to mental health calls, stuff like that, right? Um, so what we're really interested in investigating is what would it take for us to transfer a lot of those duties over to people who are better equipped to handle them, right? So what if instead of having a cop responding to, you know, a black mother's mental health call on the north side, we had a social worker do that, right? Or like a, a psychologist, right? Um, a community healer, you know? Um, and what if we actually resourced that and paid those folks to do that? And, you know, and then so we wouldn't possible. even need as many that's cops. So yeah. Possible. Yeah. It's not even hard, honestly. Um, more popular well, that was Minneapolis was the very first, like the fourth precinct, the, you know, post Jamar Clark's murder, the fourth precinct community, that occupation and everything that happened post that. I mean, that was like my introduction to the Minneapolis activist community. And that was the very first place that it, I mean, it displayed to me how much we don't need police and yeah. how much we would be better off without them. Yeah, I mean, they're not only not helpful, they're actively harmful. Right. I mean, like, even just, like, I think, like, the perfect antidote for for this is when um, those white supremacists came and shot five yes. people at the precinct, right? At a, at a precinct. Yeah, at, at a police precinct, right? At the protest. And people immediately ran to the officers and were like, hey, call an ambulance. And the officers said, this is what you wanted, isn't it? And walked back inside, right? And then, you know, 15 minutes later, they finally did show up on the scene and they pepper sprayed all the witnesses. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> they pepper to try to control the, to try to, can you hear my air quotes, podcast right. listeners? To try to control the narrative or control the situation. Um, and in reality, like the only reason the dude got caught who shot those five protesters is because he was an idiot and went and told somebody who reported him to a different police department, right? So like they, they were not at all helpful in that situation. What was actually helpful in that situation is the community members who showed up in the next couple days to be really, really vigilant about watching for like possible more like white supremacist incursions into the camp, right? It was, um, you know, the people who grabbed those people from the ground and got them in their cars to drive them to the hospital. You know, it was um, the community, like emotional support workers and counselors who reached out to a lot of the folks who were protesting in the upcoming days and, and started to talk them through the trauma of that happening, yeah, right? The, the local massage parlors who came out and set up a little tent, a massage tent for people to come out and just like have self-care. Yeah, and the people who contributed to GoFundMes for the victims and... Um, the coffee, the food, you know, just Yeah, like, and do you know who didn't fucking help? The cops. The ever. cops did not help at all. The cops were completely useless in that whole situation. They were assholes. Yeah, so for, for me, like, when people are like, 
oh, but, you know, if we don't have cops, will things descend into chaos? I'm like, well, the only people who, like, can even moderately expect the cops to help support them is middle-class white folks and rich white folks anyway. Um, So, like, without... um, Yeah, so, I mean, for a lot of us, we already have to... Yeah, right? I mean, yeah, Justine, Justine was killed here yeah, the other day. Yeah, and, and um, so, yeah, I mean, it's really, really clear that um, that the cops, and I don't know, one of the fascinating things for me in digging into the history of Minneapolis Police Department has been realizing how many of the reforms that people are talking about now have been bandied around for, like, a hundred years and have accomplished nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, civil- people are like, we need a civilian review board with teeth. Well, there have been five civilian review boards. Most of them had teeth over the last 50 years all of them were systematically taken down and destroyed by the police union, including the late... I mean, there's one kind of, sort of, now, but it barely investigates complaints. It's not effective, right? Um, And the last one got shut down because it did have teeth, and the police union convinced the state legislature to pass a law saying that they couldn't pass any findings of fact, and so they couldn't actually hold any officers accountable. Well, that's exactly the cycle, right? Is, like, something horrible happens, and all of these review boards came about in the wake of cops doing something horrible horrible which usually resulted in brown people getting killed right so what ends up happening is like something horrible happens like against black folks native folks like whoever like disabled folks insert your marginalized population here right and then the community protests and has a huge outcry and all of the community leaders and politicians cry for like some sort of reform right the city council scales it down into something that they think is reasonable right it gets put into place everybody has high hopes for it and within five years it's a shell of its formal self because everybody's realized that they never gave it any real power to begin with and the police union and the police department are two of the most powerful institutions in the city yeah exactly and they continue to maintain their power and the same thing keeps happening up until the next critical incident where you know cops brutalize somebody and then everybody comes out again and it keeps happening um and as long as we keep trying to talk about reform as uh you know about body cameras about civilian review about racial bias training about mental health training as if they're going to solve the problem um we're going to keep going through this cycle again and again and again um and so it's um so MPD 150 basically is um, trying to expose that history, right? Trying to say, look, we've done all of these things before, right? Um, they never work. I think body cameras is a great example, right? After Jamar Clark was murdered, um, the community was like, we need, you know, less police. We need to figure out other ways to keep our community safe. And the politicians um, said, you know what? Let's put body cameras on our all our officers. That'll solve the problem. That's the right thing to do. Yeah, and then when Justine Damon got killed, the body cameras weren't on. Right. And now Madaria Arredondo, the and new... Too fucking late. Like, yeah, exactly. And now the new chief is like, oh, well, now we're figuring out a new policy for body cameras. But it sounds like from the way that policy is being shaped up, it also like has a really, really fuzzy way of holding officers accountable for body cameras, right? So it's like, even if, and then we know even if officers actually have a body camera recording of them shooting somebody, the way the Supreme Court precedents are set up basically makes it impossible to hold officers accountable for killing anyone. Um, so it's just like, we need to, we need to stop taking the bait, um, on these reforms because they don't work. They never have worked. They can't work. Um, and so what we're trying to do is really reframe the whole conversation and say, let's stop talking about reform and start talking about alternatives because it's a lot easier to get to alternatives than most people think it is. And there are a lot of alternatives that are already out there today that are under-resourced and undervalued in our communities. And we need to start supporting them the way that we support the racist, antiquated system of the police. Absolutely. So yeah, that's what MPD 150 is doing. Um, 
we are right now working to um, sort of pull together some funding uh, to make our report uh, happen, finalize it and everything, make sure we can throw a good launch event. Um, we need $10,000 to do that. Um, we have a $5,000 grant already um, to match donations. Um, Live yep, we have a live fundraiser happening right now. Um, we'll put it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we also have a um, actual, like I guess, fundraising event um, tomorrow night or Thursday night. Um, and uh, that'll be really, really awesome too. There are a bunch of us. Um, and we'll link all that information definitely in the comments too. Yeah, a bunch of us performing at it. Um, Bolt Weevils are performing. I'm performing. Guante's performing. Um, it's going to be a really, really it's sick a super event. Rad show. Yeah, I'm super, super amped so for we'll, it. The storyteller, the storyteller will be there documenting. We'll have pictures and um, some live coverage as well as some post coverage. So definitely tune in for that. Um, but yeah, so thank you yeah, so much for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me in. We're super excited um, to cover this show and to kind of continue following your work. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Cool. Well, that is all for today's episode. Um, tune in next time, and all the information from today's podcast and conversation will be linked in the description. Got you to the motherfucking finish, to the motherfucking finish.